Um, hi, we're, 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 we're about to start. Um, welcome, I'm, I'm Catherine Rowe, I'm um, Oxford Research Group's new CEO. Uh, I've actually only been in the job a week, um, a whole week, so I'm glad to say that uh, you won't be hearing from me again this evening, but you will be hearing from my very, very knowledgeable colleagues. Um, you know, what I lack as yet in, uh, in knowledge about our work, uh, I make up for in great enthusiasm. Uh, enthusiasm for our mission, which is to promote more inclusive, accountable, sustainable and effective approaches to breaking out of cycles of conflict and violence. Enthusiasm for the really exciting and groundbreaking work that we've been developing whether that's in Yemen or here in the UK or elsewhere. And enthusiasm for our ability to speak to and for a really diverse range of voices and to enable groups with very different perspectives and interests to hear each other. Um, this evening, uh, we're launching the latest report from our remote warfare programme, Fusion Doctrine in Five Steps, Lessons Learned from Remote Warfare in Africa. Um, we're enormously proud of the way this programme has developed um, and that our research and our engagement provide practical, policy-relevant ways to help ensure that the kind of interventions we ter term remote warfare protect civilians, are subject to appropriate levels of scrutiny and have outcomes in clear support of a lasting political settlement. It's wonderful to see so many of you here this evening to discuss our report. Thank you very much for coming. I hope you'll stay on after the discussion to meet new and familiar others in the room. And I'd also like, on behalf of ORG, to very much thank our very expert panel uh, for joining us, and we're really looking forward to hearing your different perspectives. So now let me hand over to the chair of our panel, Mary Harper. Mary's Africa editor of the BBC World Service and also writes for other media and for academic publications and she's written two books. Uh, so please welcome Mary and the rest of our panel. Thank you very much uh, and welcome everybody to the um, launch of this uh, fascinating and um, quite challenging uh, report. I hope you can all hear me. Um, and, and before you, uh, we start, I'd just like to uh, tell you that the first part of the discussion, uh, when the panellists make their contributions, is going to be on the record uh, and it's going to be recorded. And you're very welcome, encouraged in fact, to uh, tweet about it using the hashtag five steps to fusion. Um, but the question and answer session will be off the record, so that bit is not really to be tweeted about, um, and so people can, will feel more free to uh, speak uh, when they know that they're not speaking on the record. Um, and before I hand over to the panellists, I just wanted to um, say a little bit. Um, I'm a bit confused about what fusion doctrine is, <laughs> but I'm sure I'll learn uh, more during the evening. But it, basically, it seems to be um, the latest attempt to build a more coherent uh, British foreign policy and that it's the um, latest iteration of a number of um, 
initiatives which may be started with uh, Tony Blair's joined-up government policy. Um, and what this, this report um, makes quite clear is that even though there have been uh, some improvements, massive challenges uh, remain. And uh, the example that they've chosen to look at closely is the issue of uh, remote warfare in Africa. And uh, this has obviously become something of a trend in recent years where instead of uh, deploying large numbers of your own troops to countries, um, places like the United Kingdom and other Western and other countries support um, countries, local and regional forces on the front line. And um, there's lots and lots of examples of this happening across Africa. And as a journalist working on the region, that's a very big part of my job is trying to untangle all these very complicated uh, military engagements, in, in particularly in the Horn of Africa and the Sahel. And in fact, even this morning, like the world lead news on the BBC was about two French helicopters colliding and uh, France suffering its biggest loss of troops in um, decades, and they were in Mali. So that's just a sort of example of the kind of thing that happens. And I would say the place where I've had uh, the most kind of shocking experience of this uh, multiple interventions and confused policies is in Somalia, where I've spent the last kind of 25 years reporting from very, very closely. And I never know when I'm there who I'm going to be next going to bump into in terms of military people who are advising or remotely uh, involved. The, the Turks, the Qataris, the UAE, all setting up military or have set up military bases there. Obviously, the US has drones. Uh, the African Union has uh, thousands of, of forces on the ground. Ethiopia is partly in the African Union, but also has its own other forces there. Uh, the EU, UK. Um, on one of my recent trips, I um, spent hours in a, a town called Baidoa with British troops who were there. Um, training the, the police. Well, they thought they were training the police. I'm not so quite so sure <laughs> whether they were really police. But anyway, that, that just Somalia sees an example, seems an example of where this whole issue of um, how you get involved military, militarily, remotely or not, uh, has not really led to um, huge improvements on the ground, let's say. That's been going on for pretty much 30 years now, and Somalis themselves seem somewhat, in fact, extremely baffled and confused about what on earth all these foreign powers are trying to do uh, as they watch their country continue to be in a state of uh, conflict with very little sign of improvement uh, in, in sight. Um, but the people who, who know really about this are the people sitting here on this panel, and I'll just very briefly introduce you before you make your contributions. Um, we have uh, Abigail Watson who is a research manager, manager at the Oxford Research Group's Remote Warfare Programme, and she's a co-author of this report. Um, she's co-authored a number of other reports on this subject, and her work has been published uh, in several places, including Just Security, Open Democracy, and you can also find it on the WarPod podcast. And then here sitting on, on my right is uh, Andrew Chi, who is a research fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies here in London. He's editor of their um, armed conflict database, which focuses on monitoring armed conflict uh, trends globally. And uh, his research focuses on Africa, including peacekeeping, the use of indiscriminate violence in African conflicts, and also the response to those conflicts by the African Union 
and other regional blocks. He's also got a number of other positions. He's a visiting senior research fellow at the Centre for Conflict and Health at King's College London and a visiting researcher at the Peace Research Institute of Oslo and a fellow at the Michael Nicholson Centre for Conflict and Cooperation. So quite a few hats that you wear. Um, we also have uh, here is P Peter Albrecht, who's a senior researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies and the author of several books on Sierra Leone. Um, his expertise is in the field of security, peace and development, both in terms of policy and in terms of offering programmatic approaches to reforming the security intelligence services, as well as the judiciary and, and other sectors. And um, apart from Sierra Leone, where he spent uh, many years, his work focuses on Ghana, Somalia and Kenya. And then at the end is uh, Oliver Major, who's the Chief of General Staff's visiting fellow at RUSI, uh, the Royal United Services Institute, also here in London, where he helps uh, develop thinking on the future development of the army. And uh, because he works in an independent environment, he can come up with a few more sort of challenge the, 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 the status quo, as it were. And um, he served in Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Kosovo and Afghanistan, as well as on civil contingencies operations uh, here in the UK. He's also worked on intelligence focused on Africa, and he's chaired NATO's Land Operations Working Group and their Land Doctrine Panel. Um, all the views that he's going to express this evening are his, and they're not those of the Army or the MOD or of RUSI. And then finally, we have Megan uh, Peterson, who's the Remote Warfare Programme's Research and Policy Officer, and she's the other person who wrote this report. Um, her work concentrates on the West's shift towards remote warfare, and she supports the um, Remote Warfare Programme's engagement with Parliament, political parties and policymakers. Um, she's co-authored a hard-hitting report on the tra transparency and accountability of special forces in remote warfare. And uh, you can find her work in um, places such as Small Wars Journal, Defence One and Open Democracy. So um, a great panel here. And um, we're going to start off with the um, co-authors of the report who are going to um, lay out its key findings and, and the recommendations that, uh, for improvements as well. Thank you, and thank you very much, everyone, for coming. There are a few more seats here, if anyone is <coughs> tired. Um, do feel free to sit down. Um, so, thank you so much for coming, and I really look forward to discussing the report with you both tonight and over the next few months when you've actually had time to read it. <laughs> so, first, given that remote warfare and fusion doctrine are two terms that are going to come up a lot tonight, during tonight's discussion. Well, first, Megan will outline what they mean, which sounds like it would be useful. <laughs> and then I will go in and explain our research and the five-step approach we suggest for improving UK foreign policy in Africa. Again, thank you very much all for coming. Um, so I'm going to address two key terms. The first one is remote warfare, and then go on to fusion doctrine. So as Mary said, um, remote warfare is a shift that we've seen since Iraq and Afghanistan and the cost of military interventions there, in which states of the UK are increasingly hesitant to deploy a large amount of their own troops, and instead they focus on supporting local and regional forces through support such as intelligence, air support, training and equipment, um, and sometimes with forces as well. So that's a very basic intervention. We have a whole series in the back, and we can learn more about that. Um, in regards to fusion doctrine, as many of you will know, 
That was a concept that was introduced in the 2018 uh, National Security Credibility Review, which promised future reduction would strengthen our collective approach to national security. Um, it's supposed to build on and enhance previous efforts to do the same coordination that we get departments to respond to crisis abroad. Um, in some ways, we've already seen quite tangible effects from the Fusion Doctrine. For example, we've seen the senior responsible officer position has been created to make uh, one individual accountable for each National Security Council objective and ensure there's collaboration between different departments in the um, delivery of those objectives. However, in spite of the impressive progress we've seen already, there are enduring challenges that remain. So, first of all, while Fusion Doctrine has proven its ability to mobilize the of crisis, there's still a gap when it comes to creating routine fusion when the threats are pronounced um, and there's no direct threat to national security. Secondly, most of the current efforts to fuse youth activities could focus quite strongly on bringing together UK officials. However, if there is to have a if there is to be a lasting effect of fusion doctrine, it has to bring routine engagement with a much wider um, group of stakeholders, including other national actors, the host government, um, and civil society both in the UK and abroad. This is particularly important as more and more material races on the world are conducted through more warfare, in which these, these challenges become quite um, evident. In these places, the UK is really the largest or the most committed actor. Um, this light footprint means that it has to have a, last, to have a lasting impact, it has to engage with and coordinate with other actors on the ground. Thank you. So, the Sahel and the Horn of Africa are congested spaces, as Mary said, for remote warfare with numerous actors carrying out small-scale, poorly coordinated operations, which often risk undermining regional stability. The UK has sought to address some of these problems, and in August 2018, then-Prime Minister Theresa May visited South Africa, Nigeria and Kenya, and while there, she presented the UK's new Africa strategy. The UK military also has an important role to play in this, and in particular, it seems that military training partnerships Will remain a key part of the UK's approach. To understand what these changes mean, particularly drawing on what Megan just said, we conducted field research in Kenya and Mali and interviewed British and international soldiers and interviewed British soldiers coming back from Somalia and Nigeria. Alongside this, we conducted a series of interviews and closed door roundtables with British and international experts from academia, the government, the military, civil society, both in the UK and in the Horn of Africa and the Sahel. We were there, we interviewed them over the phone. Um, and this research showed that while there's been impressive improvements in the UK's approach, there's a number of enduring challenges and also opportunities that are presented by Fusion Doctrine to improve the UK's approach and also to deliver for our partners in Africa and for global peace and stability more generally. So to exploit these opportunities and address these challenges, we suggest a five-step approach to making Fusion Doctrine work. We would be delighted to go into every single one of these, which makes up the 40-page report. But in the interest of keeping to our own time limit, I'll just briefly lay out what they are, and then hopefully we can discuss them in more detail either tonight or as we engage with all of them in the future. So the first looks at whole-of-government thinking in wide <laughs> We argue that progress in this area has been strong, but there remains problems in bridging the different languages, cultures, and planning processes across departments. Second, we look at the implementation of this approach between UK personnel and country. 
We argue that despite improvements to empowering UK personnel on the ground, enduring problems with the feedback loop between those making strategy in Whitehall and those operating on the ground create a key barrier to effective fusion in country. Third, we look at the coordination of UK and other international actors engaging in the same space. Here, we argue that the UK's more forward-facing, internationally-focused, global Britain agenda is positive, but efforts to coordinate international efforts are often undermined by the UK prioritising national objectives, influence and reputation over uniting international efforts and building long-term stability. Fourth, we look at establishing a meaningful dialogue with the host country. The UK has acknowledged the importance of speaking to a host country to find out the real needs meet, meeting our partners. Yet, this is often undermined by the UK presenting its strategy too late in the process and focusing on tactical training, which are never going to address underlying, underlying political problems. Fifth, we look at creating a meaningful dialogue between UK Parliament and civil society both in the UK and the countries in which the UK is engaged in. Here, we argue that while the UK has acknowledged the need for this meaningful conversation to improve UK strategy, the level of engagement can be variable and often insufficient. At the end of these steps, we have a case study of where UK host partners have gone a really good way to achieve some of these goals. Um, so, for instance, we examined why the UK's approach inserted the oversight factor, something which Peter will look at later. Um, we also looked at how the Belgian Special Forces effectively focused on building international coherence in this year, rather than focusing on their own um, national interests. And finally, we examined how our own colleagues at the ORG Strategic Peacebuilding Program, for all in the back, um, have worked to project and advance concerns uh, and aims of civil society groups in Yemen and elsewhere. And feel free to ask the questions um, as you know the factors. And then at the end of the report, we outline some policy recommendations aimed at making these successes systematic in UK engagement. These include things like creating a senior responsible officer who can coordinate activity at the country level to complement the one at the NSC level, and suggesting ways to institutionalise engagement with external experts. We hope that in doing so, we can advance the conversation in how to implement fusion and make it effective and useful so the UK can achieve its objectives, improve its offer to its partners in Africa and elsewhere, and advance global peace and security. So I'm glad you're all here and we have this amazing expert panel who can unpick some of these questions, issues and opportunities in more detail. Thank you very, very much, uh, Abigail and Megan. That was a fantastic summary of um, your report and also setting out your recommendations, which um, seem to make a lot of, a lot of sense. Um, and we're now going to hear from Andrew uh, from the International Institute for Strategic Studies, who um, I believe is going to look at the, um, the responses of the UK and its allies um, to conflicts in Africa and whether they're actually addressing the root causes of these conflicts. And I believe, are you going to be focusing on South Sudan? In and out. Okay, wonderful. Okay. Uh, so, I just want to say thank you to Abigail Megan for this wonderful report as well. Um, what it does, I think it gives, and there's six, I think, real important points here or takeaways from this report. The first is that it allows the UK government to rethink 
why the fusion model is not working, uh, but it effectively repositioning itself uh, to be more useful in the long run. And I think that's crucial. Um, it's not just about implementing the policy, but it's focusing on what, where we're going wrong, what we need to do, and how we can improve that. Secondly, it highlights the issue of a strategy which I think is solely focused on remote militarized security. So this sort of distance approach on how we do security, how we do uh, sort of military approach to conflict resolution, uh, conflict mitigation, which doesn't encapsulate the whole entire picture. And oftentimes the picture that is taking place on the ground. Um, and actually what it, I think it, what it does do is highlight the potential for increased use of human rights violations uh, particularly against uh, individual civilians, but collective civilians on the ground as well. Um, this security lens, and oftentimes the security lens in which uh, this approach has been taken, uh, reinforces many regimes. So if you look at the regimes uh, in, in South Sudan, and I, I am saying the regime because it has been there for several years, in Rwanda and Uganda, it, it, it reinforces the way in which they use not only violence, but also how they uh, control state and society. Uh, and I think that's important because it highlights that in this report. Um, not the examples, but the way in which it can long-term um, do that. I think the, the fourth area which I think this report does really well is, is to, to look at the way in which the UK is placed when it comes to, I would say, third-party actor. So if you think about the space in which it's operating in, there's France, there's the US, there's China, there's Russia, there's Japan, and all of the Middle Eastern countries, as you've rightly pointed out. But it shows that in order for the UK to do well, it needs to really think through how it's going to do it or risk doing more harm than it's worth. So that's something that the report um, really does. It also, I think, supports uh, the need uh, for, for sort of the relations that the UK tries to approach or how it tries to approach things from maybe a bilateral perspective in the sense of its relationship with France in the Sahel, trying to support in the long run to maybe get favourable favorable, uh, concessions later on, isn't really the approach that it should be taking as well. And I, I think the final thing is, uh, which for me was one of the things after reading the second time around yesterday, was that for, the, for fusion to be effective, uh, it requires the UK to either take the French approach, which is to really be in the African continent for several decades, or the Chinese model, which is what you're seeing uh, currently. So, what are the sort of uh, responses that I, uh, takeaways that I take from, from this and the things that I think that the UK should be learning from? I think there needs to be, uh, or there, there needs to be an ability to separate the political agenda of Whitehall uh, from the realities on the ground. So, really asking the question, why is the UK there? Why is it important? And what is the relevance beyond the two to three year funding gap? And oftentimes, you know, a lot of the programs that are done on the ground are two to three years, oftentimes four years, but it needs to think long-term. What is the aim and what are we trying to get out What are we trying to get out of there? And is there a need for us to be there? And if not, then why are we there? Because if not, you're just doing more harm in the long run. And I think that's something that needs to be uh, addressed. Uh, we talked about conflict drivers or something that I, I'm always looking at. Uh, it's, it's very good. I was based in, in South Sudan for, uh, for a few years. And it's very good to send troops to uh, Bentu and Malacca, which is the upper Nile regions of, the, of South Sudan. But if you're not dealing with the drivers, the triggers, and the intervening factors of conflict, then troops who build uh, hospitals, and not only otherwise, uh, but build hospitals or see women uh, through uh, to where they go to farm in the day, doesn't support the long-term uh, growth of the country. And actually, what it does 
um, I would say, if anything, it, it misaligns the country. Uh, because if you're focused purely on, for example, building hospitals, when the situation is about to blow up, then what you've done is provide a shelter for armed groups and rebel groups to hide amongst um, these uh, various uh, places that you've uh, built. So actually, there should be more of a focus, I would say, at this moment in time, on DDR programs. How do you, particularly the R, reintegrating troops? How do you go about supporting them? How do you reform, as it were, the SPLA, which is the army, from the movement? And how do you separate the two? But also, how do you uh, create an army that is disciplined, that respects human rights, but above all, um, is, is willing to uh, put the people uh, forward uh, f uh, first, which is really, I think, something that we need to think about again. I think that the third aspect, which for me is something uh, which hasn't really been talked about, is Africa should not be used as a testing ground for a lot of these uh, sort of uh, grand theories. Really, they should be fought through. Uh, the, uh, the right analysis should be done. It should have all aspects uh, as part of it, not just good data analysis, but also good assessments and also realistic outcomes. What are the outcomes that you hope to achieve? Not just sort of enrolling out theories that really don't really work on the ground, but actually because someone in Whitehall said, actually, this is a good agenda and we should push forward uh, for that. The fifth uh, point I would like to make is, uh, I think fusion should really include early warning, early response mechanisms. And it should, if you look at what's going on in, uh, particularly in the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea, we see that obviously there's a coalition of, of uh, Western partners who are trying to deal with piracy, but we're neglecting the Gulf of Guinea and the issues that are taking place there. So fusion should be really about early warning. How do we respond to things at an early uh, point? How do we deal with this? We also, which is my sixth point, is that we should be mindful of, 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 of fusion through uh, the French. I know there's some French people in the, in the audience. Uh, and the reason why I say this is because uh, we have ECOWAS in the region, who in the Sahel region, who is a, the regional economic uh, community or body uh, that is undermined by the G5 Sahel operations. And you, what, what the UK is doing is actually aligning itself with the French and undermining the regional body. Now, none of us would stand here and allow, uh, let's say, uh, if we were you know, uh, the UAE and other countries to uh, take up or undermine NATO, for example. We would never allow that. So why are we doing the same thing? Why aren't we using existing mechanisms and bodies there to help move things forward? And I think that's really important. Uh, taking that into consideration, uh, I think the UK should work more with the regional partners, particularly, as I said, ECOWAS, um, the African Union, uh, SADAC, EGAD as well. Because if they don't, what you have is a misalignment, and you see that in South Sudan currently, where the UK or tropical countries, UK, uh, US, and Norway, were calling for the peace agreement to happen on the 12th of November, and then two days before, EGAD says, actually, we're going to extend it for 100 days. So this misalignment means that we're not in line or in tune with what's going on on the ground as well. The eighth point, and I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, is uh, the UK is involved in a mission with France, as, as I said earlier, uh, where a growing number of civilians um, have seen a rise of, 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 we've seen a rise of civilian deaths. And so what it, what it will do in the long run is, if it continues, is it associates the death rate for people on the ground uh, to the UK. Uh, so even though you know, France is leading the way, people on the ground would then say, well, actually, since the French have been here, and I've just come back from Senegal, everyone is screaming out saying, well, the French are here, the numbers have gone up. You know, what, what, what's going on? And it, it links the UK 
to that association. And we have to be mindful of that as well in the long run. And then sort of the ninth point, which is my last closing point, uh, as we have an overcrowded uh, competing space, uh, I think what is important is that we're given, if we're not careful, authoritarian leaders options. And options in the long run contribute to declining local, traditional, and civil society organization uh, positions. So what it does is it leaders, particularly if you see in Mali, particularly in South Sudan, what they don't do is take responsibility for their actions or lead the way to resolve things because actually they're, they're saying, well, the international partners do it. Why do we have to worry about that? So we have to be mindful, but also how it undermines the local mechanisms that exist when it comes to traditional ways of doing things, whether it be the local chiefs and how they might gather seven people to resolve conflicts and issues. And those, all of those things undermine that. So I think it's really important that we look at that as well. And uh, Thank you very much, Andrew, um, for that list of um, uh, very strong points you've made um, and a lot, a lot to think about there. And, and now we're going to hear from Peter from the Danish Institute for International Studies. Thank you, Mary, and thank you also to Lady Abigail for, for the invitation. Um, I also read the, the report with great interest, and I think it is interesting that we're still talking about coordination uh, where that we are, because it is true, as Mary said, uh, in the 1990s, when, uh, when, uh, when Blair came to power, this was also a big discussion about how to do better coordination across Whitehall, how to get FCO, DFID, and MOD to actually work together better and also abroad how they could pull together funding, funding in the now infamous African and Global Conflict Prevention Tools uh, and work better together in, 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 in the world and in, in conflicts. The 1990s obviously are very, 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 very different uh, contexts to talk about and um, what I'm going to do a little bit here is in my very short time I'm not used to only speak seven minutes, but maybe now I will speak five because I'm trying to time it really well. <laughs> uh, but talk a little bit about Sierra Leone uh, in the 1990s. Uh, there was a war, there was a civil war during the 1990s, actually, and the UK played a huge role in ending the, ending the conflict, but also actually supporting Sierra Leone in, in trying to get out of, of conflict and out of sort of, the, sort of dealing with the roots of the conflict. And then compare a little bit with Somalia. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time in Sierra Leone working, so as, as Mary said, I wrote a few books about Sierra Leone, the PhD there, I worked there as a consultant. I also, that was, I also for, a couple of, for one year or a couple of years worked in Somalia, both in, in Mogadishu and in Puntland. Uh, and it felt really like coming from Sierra Leone to East Africa, first Nairobi and then Somalia, it really felt like coming from the small village to the big city because the drama that is, that is playing out in, in, in East Africa is so substantial, so fundamental uh, compared to Leone. That was really, it's a small country, it was, it, was, it was a much smaller dynamic, you could say, I wouldn't say conflict, but a smaller dynamic to step into. Okay, so I have three points that I will try to make. Uh, I will not be as structured as Andrew, I can guarantee that. Uh, but. When the UK went into Sierra Leone in very short, they were the only uh, really big country that, uh, that, that, that actually entered Sierra Leone. Um, it was, it was, uh, there was a special relationship between Sierra Leone and, and the UK due to a colonial past. Uh, there was an invitation from then uh, President Kabach uh, 
of the, of the, for, the, for the UK to, to enter Sierra Leone and support the government. So you would say that actually that special relationship really played out politically in, 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 in Sierra Leone. This is very, very different from, from, uh, from, from Somalia, obviously. Uh, as Mary said, uh, there are many players uh, in, in, in Somalia. It is, it is basically, you could say, sort of the transition between Africa and the Middle East, Somalia. Uh, and therefore, the Middle East, first of all, has very great interest in Somalia. Uh, Turkey has great interest, as was just mentioned. They play basically the role that China plays in many other parts of the, con of, sorry, of the continent, uh, putting up roads, putting up lights, building the airport, uh, which I think in many parts of Africa, if you go to Ethiopia, if you go to, to many parts of uh, many countries, you will see Chinese airports. And in, in Somalia, it's, it's Turkey. Uh, and then you have, of course, the Americans playing a big role as well, having special forces, training Puntland forces, for instance, which is the northern region in Somalia, um, in, in, in fighting, uh, fighting uh, terrorists. Uh, and this is not necessarily coordinated with Mogadishu. So my point with that is that there are a lot of different actors and players in, in, in Somalia, and they are all playing to a national uh, agenda. Um, and then, of course, as, as Mary also said, uh, Ethiopia and Kenya, Ethiopia has a historical presence in Somalia. It's not something that has happened within the last few years. There's, there's been a war between the two countries in 79, and that has really also meant that Ethiopia is really present in, 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 in Somalia. Kenya much more reluctantly, but also has a lot of interest in Somalia. The point here is that there was there is a dramatic sort of um, um, presence of the international community in, 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 in Somalia, which obviously makes it very difficult to also coordinate. Uh, and especially for the UK to play sort of a strong role in coordinating what happens within Somalia. This was very different in, 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 in Sierra Leone in the 1990s. As I indicated, there was a special relationship uh, between Sierra Leone and the UK. Uh, indicative of that is that uh, they the government invited Keith Biddle, a British police officer, to become the Inspector General of Police, who has an executive mandate in Shadow to be the, the chief of the police. He also tried cover to get Dave Richards to become the chief of defense staff. But I think that uh, both Claire Short and uh, well, the UK government and also Dave Richards felt that that was a little bit too sort of neo-colonial, <laughs> which we could probably remember. Uh, for him to do so, that was not, uh, that was not but it just, it shows, first of all, sort of the complete lack of faith in a military in, in Chirion that had done, uh, made two crews during the 1990s, uh, and really no, no, no faith in his own people, basically, in the security sector. Um, the UK was also, so you had DFID as well, playing a really big role in the security sector at this time, supporting the Office of National Security, ensuring national security coordination was taking place within Sierra Leone. Uh, also an invitation to sit really at the heart of the government. Uh, there were advisors in the Ministry of Defense, there, was a, there were advisors that were setting up an intelligence service. We had, uh, there was a big program in support of the police. So you could just, the, the sorry, my computer just died. <laughs> <laughs> So you could really just say that compared to Somalia, where the UK is 
able to play a much smaller role today in Sierra Leone at this point in time, there was really sort of a very strong presence of the UK. And it also meant, of course, that coordination was easier. It did not mean that there, wasn't turf, there weren't turf wars between the different departments, as we also have seen at, in, in, after, uh, uh, more currently, for instance, that DFID has all the money, SEO is trying to lead, and the MOD is running after FCO. But in fact, DFID does not want to listen to what the political league is saying in the country, and there you have the turf war between who's actually deciding and calling the shots in, 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 uh, in, in Shadow, and also in the 1990s. I know I find it very interesting in the report to talk about a coordination mechanism in country. And we had the same conversation when we wrote a book in 2005 about how a recommendation could be to actually have somebody in country who would oversee these three departments uh, in, in country, but who would that be? And uh, who would accept this fourth sort of uh, agency or department coming in and telling these three other departments that they, that they know how to do things, how to do things? So I think another thing that really differentiates Sierra uh, Leone and Somalia uh, is that it happened, Sierra uh, Leone happened before 9 11 just a few years before 9-11, so the military intervention happened in 2000, and, but the whole sort of setup of British presence in Sierra Leone, uh, together with the Sierra Leone government, happened prior to 9-11, which is also a big difference in comparison to, 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 to Somalia, obviously. Um, I don't think you can underestimate how much there was this idea that the liberal democratic way of doing things had won in the 1990s. So there was this really strong idea, also in UN peacekeeping, that you could go in and make states into liberal democracies and that the democratic ways of doing things had won over military ways of doing things. Uh, so it meant that when 1997, when Blair put up, set up his government, DFID was also established obviously with that government and it was a very strong department. It had a much clearer visionary idea about how to sort of set a path for UK sort of presence in, in, outside, uh, in the world, and the military minister of defense were really, to a much larger extent, looking for a role in a post-Cold War, Cold War world. Uh, it's so, so, so Claire Short, who was the first minister, and quite a visionary minister, and also sort of building a power base in Palestine, where different was at the time, was really sort of setting the path for sort of UK presence. And I had presence of, uh, uh, abroad. And I had a conversation with her about uh, her time, uh, about Chalion, and there, there was this, she, she sort of talked about intelligence, uh, sort of the different agencies coming to her and saying, hey, we have some good ideas for how you can use us. And she was like, no, I don't want that. Now, now we have, the world has changed. It's not a cold world war, in a cold war uh, world that we're living in anymore. So now, so it was a completely different way of looking at the world. And I think that's very important in terms of how she felt that she could also play a strong role in, 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 in Australia and how much aligned the three departments were at the time before Iraq and Afghanistan happened. Um, obviously, Somalia is a very different scenario and it's much more sort of in line with the Cold War, uh, Cold, uh, sort of war and terror sort of dynamic. So I, I think I'm running out of time. But one, one or two more minutes. Okay, sure. So I think the, the third point to keep in mind is also how, in terms of coordination, is how much of a political project Sierra Leone became in the 1990s. 
It was at the heart of Gorman at the time. It was the only place in Africa where Australia was shown, where the UK wanted to play a role. There were a lot of stories about why Tony Blair wanted to go into to Sierra Leone. It was because his, the first black person he saw was a Sierra Leonean, or his dad worked there as a teacher. So there were a lot of these stories running around. But the, 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 the and this is, was Claire Short actually talking this, but the bottom line was that Sierra Leone was the first, uh, the only place where, in Africa, where, where the UK government, in, his first, in Blair's first period, actually did a, a major intervention like this. Claire Short looked at Sherlyon as well, and for humanitarian reasons, she was also uh, animated by what she saw. People were being maimed. The, the, the conflict was seen as sort of a symbol of what the world, as the, what, uh, what conflicts, internal conflicts would look like in the post-Cold War, War, Cold War world. And uh, so she was also animated. And then there was the Tim Spicer, uh, uh, sort of, uh, the, the Tim Spicer, uh, Crisis? That's not the right word. But anyway, when Tim Spicer sold weapons to Sherdeon and the CEO in Sherdeon was involved in it, it was a big scandal. That was a word. <laughs> uh, a big scandal. And uh, Robin Cook was adamant and told this to David Richard that this could not happen again. We could not have a, a, a similar sort of like crisis or a sort of embarrassment on, uh, for, for the UK, which would also be if Sherdeon fell completely apart. So there were a lot of different sort of very central figures in the UK government at the time who were very interested in doing something in Chelyon. And obviously, as I want to point out, is that, as I pointed out in the beginning, coordination is political. It's about the fight for resources. And if the highest level of politics is involved in actually defining, um, uh, defining what, what what the departments are going to do, then obviously there's going to be much more impetus to do it. And I won't say any more Thank until I'm asked. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Yeah. And uh, finally, before we op open it up to the floor, um, Oliver, it would be great to hear from you um, as uh, the, the Chief of Staff visiting a fellow Rishi. Exactly, but not representing either of them, representing ourselves. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's a huge privilege to be here um, with a slightly daunting academic panel to my left. Um, I, I did ask Evan Jack Watley, who's the sort of, well, he's the landlord for a fellow at Rusi for advice on doing this, and he said, well, you might not be able to add significantly to the academic debate, but what you will be able to do is speak in, within your time limits and make sure you don't go on too long, and I'm going to try and do that. Although I noticed that actually we're well on time, so. Um, I think the first thing to say about fusion doctrine from a military perspective, is that it ties in entirely with the way the military thinks about itself. So soldiers are taught, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines are taught to go out there and achieve what they can within a stated aim, within the constraints that are given to them. And I was struck by a line in the report, or a number of lines in the report, and a number of um, comments from people who are interviewed, that one of the problems in the past has been that the military tends to pick up a problem and go and run at it and get ahead of everybody else. The great thing about fusion doctrine is that it provides the riding instructions and the context to make the military slow down and play in time with everybody else. And that's really, really important because as an organisation, the military seeks to be proactive and is, you know, is right for us to do that. And that, again, I think comes out really well in the report. 
Um, but it's really important, and this goes right the way back to Clausewitz, that military activity is supporting political aims, policy aims. And the discussion and the debate between the Foreign Office and DFID and the military about ways and means of achieving policy ends is really important. It should be choppy, it should be difficult in the NOD and in the Foreign Office, and those discussions should be difficult. But I'm reassured, talking around Whitehall to, to colleagues and people, that actually what it seems to be doing is putting us on a better footing as a group, as an organisation, as a government, to deliver the right ends in the right ways and balance those activities well. And one symptom of that, I think, is the comment in the report and a repeating comment that came out about soldiers on the ground who, you know, there's more we could do, there's more we could do, there's more we could do. And of course that's true because the military will never run out of ways it can do things. Um, we might run out of resources, but we'll never run out of enthusiasm. And the, the challenge, therefore, is for the military to continue to provide proactive options which can be refereed by the policy end state and alignment with the main policy. And I think that's really useful. And I think that's where the cross-Whitehall dialogue comes in. I was particularly, and I continue to be particularly impressed with the work of um, the British Peace Support Team in Africa, which, which is referenced in, in the report and you know, was a source of, I think, of you know, some of the discussion, which has a very, very, very positive role in managing this. And what it does, of course, is manage the aspirations of those MOD representatives placed in the embassies, the defence attaches who can provide their country theme and then have a mechanism through the British Peace Support Team for their activity to be checked against the plans and against the objectives and against the focuses. And I sense that this is a positive development for the MOD because it allows us to ensure that our activity is properly aligned to that which government wants to achieve, and that is really useful. It also talks to a point that Andrew brought up, which is the the relationship between conditionality and risk and the desire to help at the lowest level, which I think is something that is really important. What I mean by that is making sure that we do the right things in the right ways to support the right outcomes again in the country based on what we're trying to achieve. And it's that balance of local understanding that defence attaches when they when they do their job well, and they increasingly are a highly professional group of people they always were, and um, who can bring the local engagement, bring the discussions with admittedly local regimes because it's militaries, can reconcile that with their ambassadors and with the rest of the embassy team, and then present it to the military for the allocation of military resources. And I think if we can continue to get that balance right, then the engagement in a fused approach to delivering the military line of a cross-governmental approach to security in difficult areas will improve. I mean, I think there are other things that are interesting. I think, for example, there are always challenges with putting military people into multinational missions and then seeking to engage them and leverage them, because once they're in that mission, their job is to support that mission. And actually, the policy way is that we want that mission to succeed. So we have to be really careful about not compromising the integrity of the task we have asked people to do. But a properly fused approach and full engagement across Whitehall 
is absolutely, I think, in line with the way the military wants to see itself and wants to conduct itself and, and can only continue to be positive if we get it right. But it is cross-whitehall activity and we're, we're only what the military is only one line in that activity. Thank you very much and thank you all of you for um, keeping to time so well. That was uh, really impressive, so thank you very much. Um, before um, opening it out to the floor, um, there's something that's, that's been sort of started to puzzle me uh, after listening to, to, to all of you actually, is that um, you talk about how important it is for different government departments to be joined up and also how important it is for the UK to be joined up with other foreign actors. And then you also talk about um, the importance of speaking to local people and civil society organisations and all of that. But how can you really be sure that that last bit, because I must say through my work I've reported on Africa for the past 25 years, and in places like Somalia that seems to be the thing that even though people pay lip service to it, it's missing. And they yeah. don't engage, and they don't don't go and talk to people on the ground and see really what's what they think about what might work. Um, and do you think there's any kind of genuine commitment to actually engaging with the local communities, not just the the national governments and militaries? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an enduring problem, which is why it's the last chapter of the report. But um, one of the things that we often saw was that even when civil society groups were engaged, it became a tick box exercise. So they can say, we engage with civil society. And I think one of the things from our point of view, Megan, feel free to jump in, is when it comes to remote warfare and the UK footprint is, is small and it's often not the most committed or, or the most well-developed presence in the country and it doesn't plan to stay there for a long time. One of the first things that we lose is that political engagement, that willingness to, to have um, a long-term engagement with civil society to make sure that engagements can deliver for both the, the people in the country as well as all the international actors and the government. And that was why we were so keen to um, emphasise the work about the other programme at the Oxford Research Group because they, they work to magnify the voices of, of local people to ensure that they can't be ignored because I think there's in the, in the budget cuts and, and an attempt to get a decision there often the first thing to go because that's the hardest thing but it's often the most important. I don't know if anyone else wants to um, And I think as well, like, civil society is kind of a tool when it comes to kind of um, measuring the population's approach to what's happening on the ground. And again, like we were saying before, how there's a hell, especially, there's so much, um, I think, a growing mistrust and then among many populations of, of the Western dimension. And so having that measurement of how the civilians on the ground to think of it as quite important for science programs um, is definitely important. Uh, the only thing I was going to say is, uh, I, so one of the things, I, I think engaging with civil society is really important. One of the things that I, I'm always mindful of, uh, and having worked in Nepal for, for a few years uh, before I worked at Zanzibar, was that oftentimes, particularly the UN or certain organisations, would work with the same civil society uh, groups, and it would perpetuate the same sort of, or recreate elite systems within the, the same existing system, and then you have another problem, and then sort of parties. So I think it's, 
Engaging with society is important, but also diversifying. Think, and, and it's, it's that long-term, I know I'm, I'm hammering on the long-term uh, focus, but really thinking, okay, who are the groups? Who do we want to engage with? How do we uplift certain groups? So, for example, the Dalit groups in Nepal, the lower last, it took them the best part of almost 15 years for them to even be present in the national uh, political arena. But how, how do we go about doing that from the start? How do we really empower these groups? long term and not just think okay civil society who can we get okay we get a group of these people and we put them together and they're in every meeting in every group again and again that doesn't help the situation yeah i would also i agree with what Andrew said but also say that that civil society is not always a population i mean there's a professionalization of civil society but means that you're actually working with groups that know how to speak the language that donors understand that they appreciate and that they will pay for so it's, it's, there's also that aspect of it, and I think most international organizations, and bilateral donors, multilateral, they want to engage, they want to work with the people that, you know, that the, the traditional leaders, the chiefs, the secret societies, if, but they do not have access to these institutions, and they don't know how to actually program around them so that they're actually engaged in, in, in the processes that they want them to engage in. Another thing is that often governments do not want donors to go directly to civil society because they want money and funding to be channeled through them. So they decide on who's being funded and how they're being funded. And it happened in Sierra Leone because at one point they were trying to do a program and they, it was a time when non-state actors was really high on the agenda and uh, the people that did the program were really quite sort of like, you know, they tried to be innovative, they tried to really channel most of the money into local communities and the government sent them a letter saying this is not what we want and we don't want you to undermine us before we actually a functioning government. And it was, it, they had to recalibrate the, the, the program. Uh, the last thing I will say is that in Somalia, access is a problem. Um, uh, I, I think DFID, I've done some work for DFID in Somalia, they definitely they engage national civil society organizations and I think they want to do that. But they don't, they hardly have access to Mogadishu. And then they hire somebody like me who's sort of, you know, if I die, it's not as bad as someone of their own people die. And so we are allowed to go out and talk to people, travel around to Baidoa, to Kismayo, uh, and talk to people. But it, it's tricky. It's, it's difficult when you don't have access. You only see 5% of actually what's going on. And the 50% of the 5% that you see is what they want you to see because they also. Uh, in, in the business of development. So, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, do you want to add anything? Well, I think all I would say is if you, know, if you read British military doctrine, it tells you that one of the things militaries can do is, is provide access to difficult areas where security is not. But there's a balance to be struck because militaries, whether we like it or not, represent or are associated, as Andrew said, with, with governments. And so, whilst you know, it is important that we can facilitate that access where it's right, that's fundamentally how you want to achieve that access is a decision for <coughs> FCO representatives, different representatives, about whether it meets their ends or not. And it just brings us back, I think, to this conversation, the constant conversation about what is the right way for the military to behave in these circumstances. Are we being helpful in the way we're doing things? Are we not being helpful? And again, just making sure that when we act, it's the right things to do, because it will it will happen, it will happen quite quickly in some circumstances. But you've got to be really careful that that's the thing you want to happen. Thank, thank you very much.